Peloton Post is a podcast focused on housing neighborhoods, quality of life, and community in Maine. We host conversations about issues that on the surface are black and white, but just under the surface have incredible color and complexity. We hope that by showcasing the similarities underlying different viewpoints, we can build understanding and make our world a better place. I'm your host, Liz Trice. In this episode, I interview Colin Ryan, a lifelong professional homelessness advocate who argued strongly against legalizing homeless encampments, and Jess Valero, a homeless advocate who has experienced homelessness and advocated strongly for legalizing homeless encampments. We'll hear what is happening in Portland now and where their perspectives overlap or collide. I'm Liz Trice here with Jess Falero and Colin Ryan. I'm really excited to talk to you both again. There's just been so much going on with the order at the city council level and then recent clearings of two encampments and opening of new shelters. And what I love about talking to both of you is that you have very different perspectives and you both care so much about people on the ground, even though you have extremely different backgrounds and perspectives. I think for people who care about homelessness in general and wonder what's going on in Portland, it's confusing because the perspectives can be so wide. And so I'm hoping that we could just have a conversation to explain to people what you both see that is the same and how you see things as different. And hopefully you'll both get something out of it too. And, but we can also get across to the generic reader on the street who doesn't know a lot help them understand how where things are right now and how they've been changing and are changing and maybe if there's a way they want to get involved what they can do that sort of thing so it's very generic and I don't have a fixed thing in mind and we've got a little bit more than an hour together and we usually have only about at the end of the day about 20 minutes worth of text room to print text that will be published so we can just have a wide-ranging conversation and then we can I can tighten it up later that sounds good. So, the thing uh, I would add, Liz, is that yeah. I think we definitely, Jess and I both have different, definitely different perspectives. I would add that I think we also have got a really strong mutual respect for one another and a lot of common ground. I would say that too. How do you think would be useful to structure our conversation today? Just you ask questions, to I think. Up? Okay. Okay. So maybe from... First of all, I'd like to hear an update, maybe, and I know it'll be a little bit out of date because this will be published like first week of February, but you can have, there's a moment where you can update numbers or a sentence or something like that four or five days before it goes to press. But what's the current situation with, with the encampments that have been cleared is what's the result of that? Are shelter beds filling? Where are people going? I guess that's the really big question. What percentage are being captured by the shelters? Are the shelters doing a good job? And to the extent that they aren't, what's happening there? And I'm going to start there. Where So we just cleared two big, the city just cleared two big encampments. Where are people going? And how's that working? <laughs> yeah. You want me to start, Jess, or would you like to go first on this one? Go for it. Okay. I will say that a lot of focus is on the, the camp resolutions that are, that occurred recently, but I think the focus should really be on what's changed in the last month or so. And that is that the city had a long effort to uh, increase its capacity, and it did so in two ways. One, the city council allowed it to, on an emergency basis, add 50 
beds. And that was huge for the city. And bigger still, the city embarked long ago on and got resources to create, actually, it was the Greater Portland Council of Governments, I think, that got the funds for this, but they created a shelter specifically for single adult asylum seekers. And there was one point where the Homeless Service Center was at close to 80 single adult asylum seekers. And I think that resulted in a lot of other people who are experiencing homelessness not being able to access the, that shelter. And by the time the shelter opened, I think some 120 asylum seekers moved to that new shelter within like the first hour. <clears throat> and you, when you add that to the 50 beds that had been added by the city council, that made Portland suddenly have 170 beds available. And then the city did a third thing, which is critically important. And they made sure that for the whole, essentially the whole month of December, and I think up until now, prioritizing those beds specifically for people who were unsheltered and outside. And uh, the net result of that was we watched numbers go down uh, in all encampments, not just the ones that were the areas of focus, but uh, all people outside. We saw people start to come inside. And the fourth thing that the city did was it listened to outreach workers and challenged itself to remove some of the barriers that stood in the way of people coming inside. And it did not all, I'm sure, but it did remove enough. And it came up with some creative ways to invite people to come and see this thing, see this place, get a good view of it for themselves, people who hadn't seen it before and experience it. And the net result is that we saw a whole bunch of people start to come inside from outside, go into that shelter, go into Milestone, go into Florence House and go into Elena's Way. And the landscape of unsheltered homelessness in Portland as a result on January 5th looks a lot different than it did on December 5th. And we have gone from our peak in October, which I think was, I, I think we were up to 280 people outside. I'll get those numbers for you, Liz, but 200 people outside, 280 people outside, or 280 tents outside, rather. We don't know exactly the people, all the way down to where that encampment before it was, before the sweep that happened last week, I think had less than 50 tents in it, and Douglas Street was something less than half that size. So we were talking about numbers of beds still available at the shelter that exceeded the number of tents known to be outside in the city. And what they found when they cleared the remaining tents was that a third of them were unoccupied, that I think 17 more people came in on that very day of the encampment sweep from Harborview, and numerous others came inside from other encampments. So it's not just the days of the sweep that count, but actually the effects of that whole month that was a game changer for Portland. And I think we've cut the numbers of people outside down to something akin to a quarter of what it was and something back to being on par with what it was last winter. And I think that's big progress. And I, in that, I hope that changes are happening at the city that will allow it to continue to prioritize people outside, continue to reduce and remove any barriers that stand in the way, continue to do more outreach and connecting with people and uh, involving all the whole community in that effort to get people inside, which it has done with the ECRT, uh, Emergency Crisis Response Team effort, which was to mobilize all sorts of community members. So I just start with that and say that uh, 
the good news is that we've seen more people agree to come inside, which is, uh, I think, an area that we all agree makes sense. Got it. And I just have a couple of quick questions before I switch over to Jess. One of the questions I had was, what were the, what were some of the, or maybe we can, what were some of the barriers that were lowered? Can you speak to those? Yes. I, as I understand it, the city had what people were referring to as a curfew that really was that they wanted to ensure that the beds got used night after night. So they would have people make sure to let them know if they needed to, if they were going to be there that night by a certain time. And that time used to be 6 p.m. It got moved to 9 p.m. And I think ultimately it got moved to 11 p.m. That people have to let the city know, hey, I'm going to be back there later tonight by 11 p.m. The city allows people to stay out later than that. They can go if they have to go to church or go do whatever else they need to do. They don't have to be in by that time, as my understanding goes, but they have to notify the city by 11 that they intend to use that bed and have an agreement to use that. So that was one barrier. I know that they did some work with pets to allow, to partner with Humane Society to have shelters essentially provide safe harbor for pets of people who are staying outside so that people were able to do that. And other barriers, I think they work to remove misunderstandings. People get to lock their belongings outside before coming in and access those belongings any time of the day or night. So people can really move around freely and access things that although there are not mixed gender dorms, they people are allowed to spend all their time in the common areas of the building in couples and spend time together. It is really just the sleeping quarters that are separated by gender. And, and those are some of the bigger barriers that I think that they examined and removed and helped to educate people that maybe there weren't uh, as many barriers as people have thought as well, because uh, people had misperceptions about how things work there. Okay. And then the last question I have for you right now is when they said that they're going to prioritize people who are sleeping outside, how, how do they do that? Are there still more single asylum work seekers showing up every day who are like, they're ready to go into the shelter and they're saying, no, you wait there because we're waiting to see if someone else is going to, like, how does that work out? That seems awkward. Yeah. So for asylum seekers, we, I think we saw just a dramatic influx of that particular population between December and April of 2023, or 2022 into 2023. And then that continued throughout October in particular. And some people stayed, some people passed through, went on to Canada, went to other places, but it resulted in the shelter being largely uh, serving that population exclusively. So that new shelter opened up a tremendous capacity for that population. So for asylum seekers, I think they are now able to go to a specific shelter that is designed to have the services that best suit somebody seeking asylum at a different location. For other parties that are experiencing homelessness, they are actually saying, yeah, we are making our beds available to people who are in our in encampments, and we're going to work with you through general assistance and other means to help resolve your homelessness so that you don't come, you don't need to come into the shelter in the first place. Let's see what we can do to have you not stay here. And let's see if we can hold these beds for people who are outside and in, in desperate conditions. And are there enough? Are there open beds at the shelter? What's the name for of the asylum seeker shelter? 
I don't know what the name okay. of it is. And are there open beds there? Or are there still lots of single asylum? I, my understanding is 120 beds of 179 bed capacity filled when it opened. And I haven't heard that that there has been anything other than still remaining capacity there. I'm sure that some asylum seekers have arrived, but I believe that there is still room for them at that facility. And I know for sure, because I've been getting emails on a daily basis, that there's capacity at the Homeless Service Center continued with availability for people who are outside and those folks are being prioritized. And I think that number has gone down to much less than 50, but it was hovering around either side of 100 in a lot of December. So about 50 people have come in from outside into that particular facility just in the last week or so. How many people you said? How many? I think about 50. Okay. Okay, great. Jess, thanks for being with us. Tell us what you're hearing on the ground or seeing. How, what else do you have to add or any, anything that conflicts with what, what Colin says? Tell us what you're hearing and seeing and your general understanding of the situation. Sure. I'm going to say this without sounding pro-sweep because I'm not pro-sweep, but I do think Cullen is right. People have tried out the shelter who otherwise would not have tried out the shelter. I think the way that we go about it, just because something is effective doesn't mean that it's humane. And so I still have real struggles with the way that we went about it. But with that being said, people have access to shelter, but considering the space that people were put into it was either like lose the home that you've built on the side of the road for yourself or access the shelter that you're actually afraid of and it wasn't handled in an ethical way that actually allowed people for their own autonomy because people won't access the shelter based off their own personal reasoning and how they know themselves like we talked about with Oxford Street before the HSC was built, people were getting CTOs, people were having medical restrictions, yada, yada, yada. And CTOs are often because of people's mental health or trauma or brought on by communal living situations. And so I think that fear is very real. Uh, we have seen the numbers go down this week. Social workers on the ground are having a hard time getting everybody into the shelter due to how many people have access to shelter. The shelter keeps asking folks to call back at later times due to processing intakes. So that is really exciting. On the same coin of that, part of the conversation that we leave out is how unsafe shelters are and how unprepared they are for the demographics that are entering the shelter right now that we're outside. Uh, these are people that are veterans. These are people that have severe trauma. These are people with severe mental illness. These are people that don't either don't have the skills to handle themselves tactfully as people would like or don't have the capacity to. And more often than not, just based on what I've seen, what I've lived through, what I'm hearing on the ground, that is a main concern right now is that the folks that are accessing it this week are going to end up leaving or getting kicked out due to multiple reasons, such as the ones that I just mentioned. So that's a real big concern for me. We don't really live in a trauma-informed society. And I know that me for myself, I'm lucky that I have been housed for three years now, but I know that it's luck. And if I was currently on the street, I would not access the HSC. And I would not access the HSC based on the fact that I experienced chronic homelessness for as long as I did. And I'm still very traumatized from living in shelter spaces. And so even that will manifest 
in my own personal life to this day, three years later. It's something that I'm still working through. It's something that I really think that I want the general public to start talking about and being aware of because as much as shelters are our current temporary solution, they're a band-aid and they actually perpetuate the systemic issues that are happening in our world, especially targeting unhoused people. And so I would love for that conversation to be more a part of our community, especially here in Portland, because those are the things that we need to address in order to solve homelessness and get everybody in their own home. It's not enough for me to get everybody into a shelter, and it's not enough for me for something to be effective, even though it's inhumane. Uh, So those are my thoughts. That's awesome. Will you say a little bit more? Can we have a little bit of that conversation right now? What is that yeah. conversation that needs to be had? I think Cullen can even add to it because I could see Cullen nodding his head. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that you were a clinician. So you definitely must have stuff to add to this conversation because sure. I'm sure you know what that's like. Yep, I do. Yeah, what is, Jess, what does that conversation look like? What is the opening question for opening question. I don't know what the opening question is. I can lead with some of what I've experienced being in the shelter because I think just because I'm coming as someone who lived through it could potentially end up back there and somebody who has worked really hard to try and get out of that space. And so I can just answer it from my own life experience being I like from being in state custody for over a decade transitioning into the homeless shelter. I'm very familiar with living in communal living and I'm very familiar about what it's like. I'm sure both of you have had roommates before and I'm sure you've had roommates that you haven't gotten along with that came with their own drama, their own circumstances. Imagine having 400 roommates. That's really what it is. When you're in a shelter, you have, if it's a 400 bed shelter, you got 399 roommates. If it's a 200 bed shelter, you got 199 roommates. And you got 199 roommates that have also been on the streets through domestic violence, human trafficked, in the prison system, in foster care. They have been like severely traumatized, severely traumatized. If you've been unhoused, you've been traumatized. It it really is the bottom lines there. And when we talk about trauma, we don't really talk about trauma. Like there's trauma as in you have a singular traumatic experience. And then there's complex PTSD, which is consistent, nonstop, one traumatic experience after the other, which is something that a lot of unhoused people have. When you have complex trauma, such as veterans, because that's really the only context that I've really heard it talked about otherwise, other than like when I talk about it, but you have one traumatic experience after the next, after the next. And so you really have to get into a conversation about what that does to the brain. And you have to really get into the conversation about how like folks that are unhoused, a lot of the time, if they don't have, maybe it's a co-occurring thing where they don't have the supports they need and they have mental health or trauma or whatever. But really, if someone is struggling, normally they have a support person or support system that they can then rely on. Some people, most people have parents that they can return to if they were to become unhoused. Colin, I actually think you're the one that brought that to my mind during the un- the unhoused encampment. You were like, Jazz, people your age usually are staying with their parents if they're in a rough place. Right. And that kind of brought perspective to my mind. I'm like, oh, that's true. Most people do have family members. If it's not your parents, your grandma, your aunt, whatever. You have a support system that keeps you from entering homelessness. And you're talking about people that have been through so much that didn't grow up in healthy families, that didn't grow up in healthy households, that were incarcerated as young kids or incarcerated as adults. And we know that the incarceration system is not a, you go do your time and then you're scot-free. You do your time and then you have 
50,000 different barriers to accessing housing, employment, all the things, because everybody automatically assumes that you're going to do something horrible. So then you talk about stigma around those kinds of things. The situation that we talk about when we talk about it is such a complex thing that I'm not surprised that like the general population is unaware or that Portland is in the place that it's in. I don't think that there's a lack of people that care. And I don't think there's a lack of people that want to do something about it. I think that there's a lack of very real substantial conversation around trauma and why people use substances and why people are like where they're at. And what is it really that people are struggling with? And what is it really why they won't access the shelter? Why is the shelter unsafe? Why is it dangerous? Why is it something that people get kicked out of? What is really happening there? And those conversations could even brought up like, through my time at the Florence house, I saw so many horrible things. I saw a lot of horrible things. I was harassed on a daily basis by different people and you're not allowed to defend yourself in that space without losing your bed. And the way that I navigated harassment was I had the ability to go purchase myself a pair of noise canceling headphones to straight up just ignore people. But that's a privilege that I was able to do. It's not something that people are able to do to just ignore being harassed like that constantly over and over again. And I'm not sure that people that like are housed and haven't been there, the general population would be able to do that either because they'll just go home and they'll shut their door and they'll hit the block button or they'll call the police or whatever. But you can't do that when you're in the shelter. You're not entitled to that. You don't have a door to close. Another example is like we had somebody with severe um seizures and every single morning she would have a stress seizure and she would fall in the middle of the lobby and she would hit her head off something and she would bleed all over the floor and so like in my mind I can picture that almost every morning I wake up very anxious every single morning from how chaotic the shelter was early in the morning you'd have her bleeding on the floor in the lobby you'd have a fight going on in the other room you'd have two ambulances and the police trying to get in. When you wake up to that kind of chaos, it stores in your body. The body keeps the store. It holds on to all that unprocessed trauma. And if you don't have the things that you need in order to process through it, it just stores there and your brain will dissociate and keep you protected from that moment. And so instead of you healthily processing whatever it was that you went through, it just stores there and it affects you for the rest of your life. It's part of why chronic trauma and chronic homelessness will take 28 years off a person's life. This is this is why. Troubleshoot will say it over and over again, but they don't explain it. It's 28 years, it takes 28 years off their life. But why does it? It's because people are tramp going back and forth. I when I was unhoused and I was walking the streets of Portland, my shoes broke in Monument Square and I had nowhere to go. I had just aged out of the teen shelter on my birthday and I was waiting to get into the Florence house, but the Florence house was a lottery system at that point. And I would go every single day at one o'clock and I would put my name in, but there was 40 other women looking for that one bed. And when they did do the regular beds and they transitioned that around, those 24 beds were a lottery system. So all 40 women, there was no tracking how long you've been waiting for a bed. All your names went into a hat and they pulled your name out. And that's how you got a bed. Yes. And so my shoes broke in Monument Square during this time and I had to take them off. And my feet were covered in bloody blisters from the tip of my toes all the way down to the bottom of my toe, on the bottom of my heel. And so that's another example. But you can also talk about how at the Florence house, there was this one incident where these two women got in this argument. One girl grabbed the other girl's hair and she shoved a pen in her throat. 
And I can remember very distinctly being in the bathroom because I had run away from that situation. I was like, I'm getting out of here. And I went to the bathroom and then in came that woman with a pen in her throat and she just rips it out. Oh, no. Right in the bathroom next to me. And so I can continue to tell you all these like trauma dump stories, but it's it's not it's not a let's bring everybody indoors and then we all sing Kumbaya. Like the fights that you see down at the encampment and the behavior you saw down at the encampment are uh manifestations of our systemic problems as our society they're not something that is just confined to encampments that's also going to happen at the hsc it's going to happen within the florence house it happened down at oxford street happens at the teen shelter and it's not to say that it's a fault of the teen shelter or it's a fault of the hsc or it's a fault of preble street but it is a systemic failure failing Because none of these people, regardless of like how they choose to take out all this stress, anguish, PTSD, all of them are trying their best. Mm -hmm. They are trying their best and they're working with what they have. But there's something to be said that if you throw somebody out into the wild and you make them to survive that long, they end up becoming wild. You can't be surprised by that. If somebody is sleeping outside for 10 years and they have a knife on them, of course they have a knife on them. If I'm sleeping outside, I'm going to carry something to protect myself. When I was down at the Florence house, my best friend who passed away now, you remember this, Liz, when she was camping down at the bay and you came down and helped with the knots Mm -hmm. on her tarps. Her and her son, who you also met, and his partner at the time, while we were building that encampment, there was this one gentleman that would ride down his bike and he would make sure to stop at the encampment, especially when we're trying to use the bathroom. And he would sit there and he would watch them. And he would make sure to harass them. He made it a point to come back every time. And at one point while I was down there, he did that and got ready to pick up her knife (laughs) to do something about it. And no, should do that. But it's at that point, people that have not been in that scenario don't know what that's like. You, You are exhausted. You are tired. You are traumatized. You're just trying to use the bathroom. And you're swimming in the ocean anyway. And this house guy is coming down on his bike just to harass you. Successfully, I was able to talk her off the ledge and no violence happens that day. But it's very much not the point. People should not be put in these scenarios. We need to really focus on the systemic problems at hand and solve those. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I actually... It's always, I'm always so blown away when I listen to you talk, Jess, that I actually hope that I can get this into some kind of format to share with other people because it's amazing. Like when you tell these stories, it's, oh my God. And I remember going down there and helping these women, this woman with the knots and thinking like, oh my God, like this is it. You know what I mean? This is the best thing right now. And it's not great. It's terrible. And the fear of safety and it's just a lot. I think it I didn't of- tell you, but the reason why she had lost her bed at the Florence house was because my best friend, Courtney, mm-hmm. I had gotten her a bed at the Florence house and I was always on seizure watch for her because Courtney has really bad epilepsy. And so she would just go into complete stress seizures while we were just hanging out. And I was always right there. But one day, one of the women at the shelter stole her seizure medication. Oh. And so Christine flipped out and she ran down to meet that person and punched her in the back of her head so that person called the police immediately and got a harassment order which meant that she could not be within 50 feet of the shelter that the other girl was at 
And so she lost her bed. And that was why. And that morning, right after all that went down, Courtney went into a grand mal seizure and ended up in the hospital. The ambulance was taking her away as ran down to punch this person in the back of the head. And it's one of those things you don't hear that context when you hear the situations that are happening with unhoused people. And a lot of people haven't been in those scenarios. When I was growing up in state custody, I was in many places that would just let us beat the shit out of each other. They would. They would just let us beat the shit out of each other and they would pick which best one to congratulate on or go for. And that was just the way that it was. And so I personally am not surprised that people go and punch each other in the face. Not one bit. Because if you put it into context, like the goal of a parent is to teach a child emotional regulation skills and how to be an adult. It's to keep them a kid and give them the resources they need to be a functioning human being. And so if you see an adult out in the world who can't do that, it's a really good signifier of what they missed as a child. Mm-hmm. I know just from my own personal experience of being institutionalized for so damn long that it is hard to be a functioning human of this society. It is really hard. I am very tired every day of day. I am very traumatized. I'm very traumatized. I'm very tired. I have lost a lot of my friends. And half the time, I don't want to fucking do this. I don't care. I don't want to do it. And so I know me and I know that I'm not going to, I I know that I have a a deeper understanding of where other people are at when they do this kind of thing, where the general public is going to look at it and just be like, that person is a piece of shit. But it's not the case. That is not the truth of it. It's the things behind that people aren't seeing. It's the truth of what is happening in the pits of our fucking society that nobody wants to see because it's so horrifying. It is so horrifying. Of course, nobody wants to see it. It's so valid. Fucking horrifying. But the solution is not to not see it. The solution is to see it and do something about it. Because if we're seeing systemic trauma and systemic oppression happen before our eyes, and instead of blaming the system, we're blaming individuals, it shows us that there's a gap between the, the people that are just general population and the people that are getting beat on. And it's not to say that like the person who's, oh, like I really, I'm feeling really harmed by that and I don't want to see that is a bad person. It's to say that it is a part of the community's responsibility to hold on to that. Because honestly, if I have to see it, you have to see it. If I have to see it, you have to see it. And you're not exempt from seeing it if I have to. Because- The problem is that conflict isn't inherently bad. It's not. Conflict shows us that something needs to be addressed. And we keep coming to this conflict because we haven't addressed the thing yet. And that's okay, but we need to. Awesome. I'm I'm with you, Liz. I love the opportunity to listen to Jess. (laughs) You're so extremely articulate. And uh, I agree with what you're saying. And you've really illustrated it very well and i i feel compelled to add to it just to reinforce that that what we're seeing with homelessness with people experienced experiencing homelessness is a broader systemic issue on every single count and uh, it is on us to fix that broader systemic issue and if you look at people with mental illness for example and it's people with serious and persistent mental illness it tends to be people who experience psychotic symptoms and what we know about people who experience psychotic systems symptoms is that all those symptoms are exacerbated by stress and arguably 
the most stressful situation you could be in is chronic homelessness. So when you see somebody who has a serious and persistent mental illness and they happen to be in homelessness, we often see them blurredly psychotic. And that is nothing more than the circumstances that they're in, that they're under a tremendous amount of stress. And that when we move that same person and say, hey, you get to come inside this apartment and live right here, and you're all set now, I watch people and nothing has changed. They're not on psychotropic medications. We haven't done therapy. We haven't done really anything except remove the, pick, take them from a really stressful situation, move them into a safe situation of housing. We, I watch people clear of those symptoms right in front of my eyes. And it's just as if they took medications. It's just as if they were treated. That safety and security of housing is healthcare for our population. And we don't offer it to everyone. And we're, we have tremendous barriers to access, asset, accessing housing and safety. And we have a tremendous amount of the population, as Jess described so well, there have other situations of trauma, family situations that were not supportive or families that just aren't there. And that adds to stress and it adds to trauma and it leaves people in a unfair situation that is exacerbated by us not having housing for them. And it is solved by us actually having housing for them. So really well said, Jess. And if we can bring people indoors into housing, we win. And short of that, shelter is an is a interim step because we're much better at getting people housed from shelters than we are from outside. So it can be useful, but it's not without its challenges. And it doesn't, it's not a panacea. We still need to fix these systemic issues, but you've described the challenges that the population face just beautifully. And, and I will tell you that when we get people into housing, those challenges dissipate largely. They don't go away completely, but man, it is so much better because we watch people get to heal and they don't need to be worrying about their safety if they're in their own home and they're not sharing it with 400 people or 200 people. They're actually there in a manageable setting. And so that's really what we want to aim for. And I think both Jess and I are aiming for get people inside into housing and help to make a shelter recognize that trauma is there and we need to solve for it and treat for it and, and meet people where they're at and can't ignore it. So I'm interested in yeah. two pieces. So one piece is like when you guys both talk about the systemic thing, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what some of the systemic solutions look like. And I realize that could be really complicated, right? But but I'd be curious to hear a little bit about that and also a little bit maybe from Jess about, or both of you, but I'm thinking Jess might have more here on if Cullen's right that people are healthier and safer once they get into housing and it's easier to get them into housing once they're in the shelter, but that process itself is traumatic. So I guess there's two topics here and we're not going to be able to do both really thoroughly, right? But one is like, how do we make that process from getting people from outside through a process to a safer place in a non-traumatic way? And then the other is the question of the bigger systemic failures, which of course is a bigger conversation. So I don't know which piece of that you want to take on first, Jess. 
I think me and Colin could popcorn this one easily. <laughs> right. um, my first thoughts are, I think you're absolutely right about the shelters, Colin. We do need them. I look forward to the day when they're temporary like they're supposed to be. That's right. Me too. <laughs> I look forward to that. The piece about the process of getting into housing. So we need to like mainstream housing. Homelessness shouldn't exist. It's That's really right. ridiculous that it does. It really is ridiculous that it does. The fact that we can even say that our country has been a lot, you know, I'm going to use the word alive because I'm, I'm lacking articulation in this moment, alive for this long while our people have been sleeping outdoors and freezing to death. It's absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. I'm going to talk from my own personal experience around getting housed. The process of getting housed, I realized very quickly that I was not going to be able to get a job while I was actively unhoused. But when I first became unhoused, I'm going to use the word unhinged because I really love the word unhinged. I want to make myself a t-shirt that says unhinged with the uncrossed out because I really try not to be unhinged, even though I know that I can be. And I was very unhinged when I first came to the city. I had just gotten out of super institutionalized, just spent over a decade in state custody where the reaction to me crying or being upset or trying to run away was for them to put their hands on me and to throw me down on the ground or to lock me in a seclusion room for weeks on end. And so I was not okay when I arrived and I was homeless and I was in a state that I had, was not familiar with and I was getting lost in all the squares because Monument Square, Longfellow Square and Congress Square all looked the same. And so that was my starting point. And at that point, I was not able to work. I was so traumatized. I was so alone. I was terrified. I had nowhere to go. My mother didn't want me around, even though she was the one that got me out of state care. And so there was a lot that I really needed to navigate in order to feel okay and feel functional and be in a place where I was able to get a job. Okay. So I fast forward, right? I'm in a place where I am able to work. I'm finally housed. The process of being housed has been very hard. When I first got housed, I was in a domestic violence relationship. And my transition into housing was me being locked in every single room of my house and restrained on my couch and kept me from leaving. And it turned into the police being called, me being, he grabbed me. And because I grew up in state custody, I don't do well when a man grabs me. doesn't really matter who it is. And I immediately kicked him because I was like, what are you doing? Because he had asked to chat and I had been very straight up. I am very triggered right now and I need to calm down before I can have a conversation with you he did not like that he grabbed my arm I tried to push past him his buddy grabbed my other arm I kicked him he charged me with a police assault on a police officer after restraining me on my front porch bruising my arm I broke my finger in the black back of the paggy wagon trying to call my grandmother because it was in the back of my pocket it ended up being a very fucking traumatizing experience for me And it didn't need to happen that way. And I look at it and like from there, it has been a very rough. I entered college while actively in a DV situation. I entered college and I got A's and B's. I got two, I took three, three classes. I got A's in two of my classes, B in one. And I had to take a a medical leave on my second semester due to everything that I was trying to navigate all at the same time. And then, so now from there, I started working for the Church of Safe Injection, and that has been a whole transition. But for me, I don't have any family support. I don't have any familial support, and I'm still building my community support. And so I very much end up doing a lot of things on my own, and it's very confusing. It's very overwhelming. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. (laughs) 
I'm just winging it. And so these are some of the things that we talk about. We need to absolutely bring people into their housing because Maslow's hierarchy of need, people need fucking housing. And this is why I love housing first, which I actually don't qualify for, but I think that I should. But it wraps around the 24-7 support. And that is such a crucial piece. That's also why I love Greater Portland Peer Services, because this is what they do down at Franklin Towers, because they know that getting people into housing is just a very first step. The second step is that people can't make progress without community support because people are inherently social fucking creatures. People are inherently social creatures and we need each other. We need each other to do the things. And as someone who's young and has been doing this alone for a very long time, I think that I can testify to that. And I can say that that is something that we really lack and really leads into our housing recidivism rate. People get housing, but then they're alone and they've been in a community living situation for years. I have never lived alone. It is so anxiety provoking living in my own house by myself. So anxiety provoking. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop every single day. I pace around my house like I'm still at the shelter, but it's from being at the shelter because there was nowhere to sit down. (laughs) There was nowhere to sit down. I was always wandering around. I was always anxious. I was always in survival mode. And so I was just pacing back and forth and I'll find myself doing that in my house. And so that just touches on the little bit of like how hard it is even after you transition into housing and how traumatizing it can be and how alone you can realize you are sometimes, especially when people enter non-housing first housing, like independent housing or Franklin Towers or anything like that. As far as systemic issues go, we, (laughs) that is a really in-depth conversation. It's an in-depth conversation. You're talking about One of the things about systemic problems that I'm really into is the rehabilitation piece of like, how do we get people the support they need to move forward from all the shit they've experienced? Because then you talk about generational poverty and you talk about racism and you talk about the incarceration system and you talk about CPS and you talk about the, there's just, (laughs) there's so much, there's so many different aspects to it that yeah anyway sorry lose my train of thought i think the one big one is that our society does not value the health of our fellow human being as much as it's set up to just value our own needs and that shows in the way that we treat one another and allow people to be really in terrible situations and tolerate that as a society that that's somehow Uh, reasonable or acceptable. And instead of that being a motivator for us to make sure that everyone has has access to housing and healthcare that they deserve as a human being, just as a basic right. But we have great disparities of uh, wealth. We have every type of ism that keeps people down. We have oppression. We have systemic oppression. And all of those have played into the hands of us having a group of people who have underlying poverty and discrimination and are oppressed within our society, unable to access very basic uh, goods such as housing or healthcare and or food in some cases. So I think we've got work to do. And I guess the bigger question, I think I hope that we have some time in the conversation is, what do we do to step in and mitigate that? Because you also then step right into the hornet's nest of people's autonomy and, and rights to do as they choose. And I'll put out there just for conversation, because I think this is a good one for Jess and I to have, is that 
I'm of the mind that we have gone too far in making sure that people have their preservation of self-rights, that we have grown comfortable with letting people sit and struggle and die in front of us in squalor, and that it, it is on us to change the way that we set our systems up so that there is not only a basic safety net, but an insistence that people deserve to have housing and healthcare at the very root. So I, that motivates me to think that it's on us if we see people who are struggling outside, that it's okay for us to do what we can to insist that they come inside. We can't make them, but that we set the bar that everyone deserves to be inside and we open up space for people to come inside. And I do think the city did it right in terms of opening up shelter space as the first step. That doesn't solve everything, but it is a good first step. Other communities have not had the luxury of that because opening up housing is a much longer game. And uh, we have such a long way to go to have an availability of that. So the question that I would like to discuss is, what do we do? Can we intervene if we see somebody who is struggling with um, substance use disorder and uh, we're watching them slowly die in front of us? When is it or is it ever okay for us to step in and say, hey, we want to step in and intervene and make sure that you're safe, at least for a little while, a week or so? Can we pull you inside, warm you up, have you a chance to think clearly and be safe and warm for a second, and then recheck and see how you're doing, as opposed to ask you or in your right in the thick of this crisis and chaos and a very dangerous or damaging situation? And I don't know the right answer to that, but part of me leans towards that we have to somehow switch from a hands-off approach. That, and, and I don't mean that in a triggering way, just, but approach where we just let and watch people deteriorate in front of us and somehow grow accepting of that as a society to more of a engaged approach that we say, we need to do something about this. We need to ensure that everybody has access to what they need. And I have gotten really worried with encampments. I've always felt in Maine that homelessness, it was within reach for us to solve homelessness. I think we have a finite population. We have an almost adequate health shelter network. We have pathways into housing. And we, have, we know essentially all the people who experience homelessness by name because our numbers are so small. I think we can end it. But once we have people outside, what happens is that we have, there's, some sort of a effect where people arrive here from other places and want to be a part of what looks like a, some sort of a party. So we watched our numbers really grow when we had people outside and not all people were homeless or people participating. So I just worry that when, if you go to the West Coast, now it is almost the norm that you will see people outside in every Western city. And that it has gotten to the point where we can't imagine it not being that way. And that's not how it is in Maine. We have unsheltered homelessness is relatively new to us. Large encampments are new to us. And I want to make sure that Maine is not a state where that becomes somehow normalized, acceptable, and that we just go on our way and step over people who are outside. I'd like for us to become more interventionists where we say, nope, we've got to do something. This means that we don't have enough shelters. This means we don't have enough housing. This means that we're not stepping in and uh, challenging ourselves to insist that people deserve to be inside. So those are the greater 
discussions that I think we need to have as a society. How do we get that right? Because people have a right to choose for themselves, but are they choosing if they are unable to think very clearly because of trauma right now and they're in traumatic situations? And what do we do? Do we become more paternalistic and say, you're not thinking well for yourself, so I want to think for you. I want to get you inside. I don't know. It's tough, but we've got to challenge ourselves or else we're going to have this decision be made for us where we allow a society that it comes to uh, be accustomed and accepting of unsheltered homelessness as the new norm. I like that question, Cullen. I, as a harm reductionist through and through, I really appreciate the question because I think it's a valid one. I also, I don't think that it's up to us to become paternalistic and to tell people what it is they need to do because the idea of recovery, like just talking specifically for people who use drugs, the idea of recovery, everybody knows about. Like when we bring it up to people, it's not something that they haven't heard of before. It's not something they don't know is an option. It's not something they don't, they don't want. Most people who are using drugs do want to be sober. Drugs don't actually help the situation. The problem is that they're using it to deal and cope with the situation at hand. And so the issue is not necessarily do they want to get sober and do we need to make that decision for them? It's more of allowing people and showing them that they are loved, they are safe, and it's okay to exist wherever they at and also know that people are there when they're ready. Because when you talk about recovery you talk about people who use drugs as someone I have never used hard drugs in my life and I don't know if that's true for you Cullen or you Liz but I don't know what it's like to get sober from heroin I don't know what it's like to get sober from something like that I know from working people who use drugs and I know from loving people who use drugs and having many friends detox at my house I've been a main support for a lot of my friends who have detoxed at my house did they get sober right after not necessarily did it matter to me at the time? No, because it's really a matter of I can't say what someone else needs because I don't know like what they've been through, where they're at, why they're doing what they're doing. And I also can't say what it is that will turn them in the other direction. But I do know from my own life that people that have sat with me, regardless of where I was at and kept reminding me about my inherent worth regardless of where I was at that moment, changed my life forever. And if it wasn't for those people, I wouldn't have recovered to the point where I am now. Not that I'm recovered, I'm a fucking mess, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't be here. And I think that question is really good. I, I just think that there's a way to approach it that the city is just missing, which is is what it is, but it's a very almost like harsh move to just be like I'm gonna destroy this home you built and your only option is to access the shelter even if the shelter is a good thing even if like we are increasing our bed capacity even if people are accessing it even if like people do get sober from it like that's all fantastic but I do think that we need to be careful about trying to step into other people's lives and telling them what it is that they need. Cause we can't possibly know. So we can't just, possibly know with any of that me, moment. Let me ask you this criticism aside of whatever the policy is part of what you said suggested that you have realized that people just deserve love and that they deserve like a big hug when they're in their hardest time. And that is something that you were 
deciding for somebody on the outside. We can't fix people. We can't make them do things. But I just, I'm thinking as you say that, how do we say to people who are outside in uh, terrible situations or are about to face a winter where we know it's going to get dramatically cold or dramatically snowy or really dramatically dangerous, that they just deserve love and warmth and 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 our positive attention to to be inside. How do you do that in an empowering fashion most successfully in it? Again, I don't have the answer, but I want to think with you about that because I think that what you said, I know that recovery happens in community because recovery happens because people feel finally a chance to feel good about themselves instead of what the, you know, what substances do to people. They make them feel bad at themselves, just like advertising does, just like all sorts of other elements of society. But when people get into true recovery, they've figured out how to really care that they've figured out how to have a positive sense of self-worth. And that takes days, months, years to establish. But that starts with somebody giving them a message that they are worthwhile. And That person uh, is usually somebody who they trust. Because right. we can go out and right. we can say that to people, but they're not going to believe me if they don't know who right. the fuck I am. And so that starts with just a trusted relationship with the person that you care about because this person knows that you care about them. I'm not going to just go out and tell if I'm going to come across the first random homeless person I say and be like, you deserve better than this. Because they do, but they're going to be like, who are you? (laughs) I don't know who you are. Like, I don't, yeah, leave me alone. But it it all starts with a basis of trust and a relationship. Yes. Yes. And yet you do feel like you, it's the person is, it's, they're deserving of you saying to them, you deserve better than this. You're essentially implying that through a trusting relationship and you are communicating that through action, right? Yeah. So somewhere in there lies the answer. And I don't know how we parse that in terms of policy, but I think that is the direction where I think Jess and I have common ground. How to get there is, I think, maybe a longer conversation, but I think that we're getting somewhere to towards the nugget of it. I imagine the outreach workers are trying to build relationships with people. I imagine that's part of the strategy, right? That's been really hard for folks with the encampment sweeps because people have been so scattered after the encampment sweeps. That's the other part of it, right? Because it's encampment sweeps are inherently violent. And like when you displace people, whether it's a tent structure or a roof structure, it communicates to them that you are not trustworthy and that they don't matter, regardless if you have an inside place for them to go. And I guess the point that I want to target here is more of the way we go about things. The way we go about things is so important because the way we go about them communicates our intent to people that are incredibly vulnerable and incredibly observant. They're watching us. They're watching to see if we actually give a fuck about them or not. They're trying to see it. And if we go to somebody, let's say for an example, that I am the city and Liz and Colin, you both are at the encampment. And if I come down there and let's say you're both using drugs and I'm like, listen, you need to leave and you need to access our shelter. And you're like, hey, I have these barriers that are in place that I don't feel comfortable going to your shelter. I don't feel comfortable having 200 roommates. I'm actually really scared to access that. And I'm like, okay, but you still need to go anyway. You guys are going to stay outside. And then if I come back a week later with a bulldozer and I bulldoze that your tent, you're not going to feel safe with me as the person who just told you to access your shelter. 
And so I don't know what (laughs) the answer is to that either. I don't. But at the same time, like people that are on the streets are incredibly vulnerable and people that are making the decisions around how we handle it are not. And so there is inherent power difference between that. And I don't think that people are giving that as much weight as it needs to be given, because with that, it's very important the way that we choose to handle things, because it does tell people whether they're worthy or not. And it's not really, we we should not be perpetuating the shame that people are already feeling for where they're at. It's not helpful. Shame kills. I totally, I think you said that really well, and I totally agree with you, and I can see exactly your point. And on if coming at it from the other angle, if we choose to just essentially do nothing and suggest to people who have are experience, have experienced trauma, have self-esteem issues, don't feel good about themselves, that we think it is perfectly acceptable for you to live outside in in a winter in Maine in this setting. That also communicates to them that they're really not worth the kind of basic human rights that other people are entitled to, which is- See, I don't feel like we're saying that because we don't want people outside. This is part of the conversation around encampment sweeps that I don't don't fully understand because I don't feel like either one of us is saying that. I don't feel like we're going to people and we're saying, it's okay for you to be outside. We're going to people and we're saying, it's okay for you to be where you're at. We would love if you went outside. It's really cold out here. You may freeze to death tonight. Those are loving conversations we can absolutely have with people. But it's really, it's a hard line. It's a really hard line to hold because I don't think anybody agrees people should be living in encampments. Nobody wants that. Not the people that are pro-sweeps, not the people that are against sweeps. It's not, that's not a problem. It's more of this line of, Yes, it was effective in getting so many people indoors, but only time will tell whether they're able to actually stay there or not due to these systemic things that we just talked about. And so there's that acknowledgement. And if they don't make it, tents are illegal in the city of Portland, Maine now. So the people that are still out there are waiting to get a bed or trying to find transport to the shelter, which there are people that are trying to do that. I see it every single day. I've seen it since Tuesday. They're still trying to access that shelter, but it does not mean that it's set up for them to be able to stay there and get what they need and stay there long-term until they do get housing. And so that's something we really do need to address in our shelters. Because if we want people to get indoors and we don't want people outside, which all of us can agree on, we need to assess that. And we can assess the dog barrier and the, the couple barrier and all these other barriers. But if it really gets down to the nitty gritty, what we're worried about are the folks that have that severe trauma and are going to go right back outside anyway to be swept by the police officers again. Because the issue is that the, sh- the shelter's just not set up for everyone to be in it. That's the real issue. If the shelter was set up and it was safe and it was a place for everybody that they could access and get what they needed, I would 100% be like, tough love, let's get you in the shelter. It is a safe place for you to go, but I can't say that to people and social workers can't say that to people. So that's, that's the thing. That's yeah. what it is. So you can't force people to come in and do that the wrong way because that's going to miss it. And you can't not do anything because that also uh, isn't the right way. We clearly want to have everybody inside. It makes me think that I am certainly not pro-sweep. I think I'm pro-inside, pro 
challenging people to come inside as best we can. And, I didn't mean and, to imply that, by the way. No, I, you weren't talking to me. I was just, I was identifying, I was owning my own stuff as to where I am. You were fine. But I think that the common ground is always that we want people inside and how do we make that happen most effectively? And it is dicey because it also is a whole group of individuals with their own set of experiences and traumas and challenges and hesitations and everything else. And so it is an engagement challenge that we face both on an individual outreach basis and as a as a city and a society how do we do this and uh, it's new to us as well and we've never had large-scale encampments in the country before 10 or 15 years ago I and mean, that was not happened didn't happen so now it's happened on the west coast and here it is spreading into this country and we still the last time we had an adequate supply of affordable housing in this country was in 1977. We've been going slowly trying to catch up, but our trajectory is much lower than the absence of housing that we have. So for example- I think I heard we have to invest $150 million annually in order to restock our housing stock in oh, the state of Maine. <laughs> uh, it, it's in the billions for sure. But but we it, just in Maine- we're short somewhere between 20 and 26,000 units of housing. And right now we're developing housing at the fastest pace that Maine's ever done it. That's 500 units a year. That seems blisteringly fast doing the math that it will take 40 years to get to 20,000 units at that pace. And so we need to have federal investment in housing that really writes to the ship, or we're going to see not just all communities where rent is a little bit out of reach for people or a lot out of reach, we're going to see every single community be out of reach for a significant portion of the population. And that's going to drive our homelessness to where there is no alternative, but having a mixture of people who are living outside and a mixture of people living inside. So we've got to fix this systemically with housing ultimately. Awesome. I So I guess I'd like to start to bring yeah. us in a little bit. And so I'm curious about over the next month or two, like, what are you seeing as positive um, actions either that happening or are likely to happen or that people who are reading this could take? Like how people, how can people get involved in the conversation? I know April Fournier as the chair of the HHS committee is supposed to take a leadership role. I haven't talked to anybody yet. Preble Street. So I, I'm just curious, what are the mechanisms in place that there were these conversations are happening? Or is there anything that you want to propose publicly that should happen? What's our positive um, actions here that yeah. are happening or could happen? Do you want to go or have me go first, Jess? You go first. Okay. I would propose that we take a, a plan of action that focuses on insisting that people be inside and by insisting that we create space and welcoming environment and encouragement for people to have access to that environment. One of the postulates is to ensure that the shelter has sufficient emergency capacity for the ebbs and flows of homelessness that it will face. I think that's critical because if our city has, a, has less shelter capacity than it needs, we are inevitably going to see more people land outside. And if the city has adequate capacity and ability to be flexible to meet emergency needs, I think that's our best solution to it, it, having the ability to insist that people come inside. So we need structures for people to be in there, indoors, warm, have 
food, warm showers, privacy, those kinds of things need to happen for safety reasons. So having people insist that their city keep up the its emergency of the extra 50 beds as needed, I think that's the best way to actually empty out the shelter, that we, if we can have that shelter operate eff eff efficiently and help people as quickly as possible get into housing, we will continue to create room if the capacity is able to ebb and flow with the needs that it meets. Two, I think we need to insist and welcome in housing uh, in the city uh, so that we have places for people to go. Um, and three, we need to uh, make sure that we are kindly welcoming everybody into the fold, that we are meeting people with support services, we are opening up healthcare, we are opening up outreach services, and we really are short on all of those levels. Our emergency rooms are overcrowded. Our outreach staff is thin and inadequate. We are short of the resources we need to put people into housing. We need to focus on writing that ship, and we can do that locally with some resources. So those are the three things I would start with. And having the city of Portland insist that it that everybody deserves to live inside it should be our mantra. And, and then we can fine tune how that works for each person facing their own crises, as Jess and I were just talking about. I think there's a way to do that well on a per person basis, but we have to start with the decision that we're going to have space for people inside and help people to get to it as best we can. Jess, do you want to respond or propose what you think are the best next actions? Conversation sure. action wise. Yeah. Sorry, this feels like a tough question. I absolutely agree. The other well, no, go ahead. I was gonna ask was like I was wondering if you take the policy of everyone deserves to be inside and we're gonna push you really hard to be inside, but we are not gonna commit an act of violence in order to get you inside. Yeah. Like what is left in that middle place? I guess that's what I like. How much of it is just like more money for outreach workers, or how much of it is like I was picturing to follow the paternal or parental thing. Maybe you don't you don't physically force your 13 year old into the car, but you start constraining them like the various tools parents have of coercion that isn't actually violence. So I'm wondering if you said no violence, but highly pushing and pulling what you know are there different practices that could evolve that's a good question I don't know how it works across state to state because I know that other other states definitely do resolutions encampment resolutions yeah I I or think like, that there is a like, way okay there's three people who are better in their tents for now we're going to help okay. you transport your tent to the HSC property and you can come in and you eat and use the shower, but you can sleep in your tent at night and we're going to make sure that your tent is safe at night. Something like, I'm just trying to think, is there any interim thing that, because it because we seem stuck in this all or nothing thing, you know? I don't think we're going to get everybody inside. I, yeah. I don't think that's necessary. I think that can be a goal, but a goal is something that you aim for, but you don't necessarily always achieve. But if it remains our goal, then we will strive towards it as a city. And we will, if we do our best, we will get uh, almost all people inside as a result of that. I don't think that moving people's tents to the outside of shelter is a good idea because we watched Bangor try this at the Hope House and it resulted in a very large encampment right next to the shelter that has not ever been able to be resolved. 
because it, it just hasn't worked. But I do think there's a difference between an individual who has figured out how to survive the winter outside. And we always have 10, 12 or so people who are, have figured this out in, in a city and a cluster of people that attracts people who want to prey on them. And I think that we need to distinguish those two things that we try really hard to have everybody inside. We recognize that perfect is not the enemy of the good and that for the couple of people outside, we then do our best to build relationships and figure out a way to get them directly into housing because we can do that. It's just much slower uh, or into the shelter if we can remove those barriers to make that happen. So I tend to lean in that direction. I think you answered that perfectly. Jess, I want to hear about, like, you've been talking about hosting community conversations. I had circled some ideas about like hackathons and there's 850 people sent written comment about encampments uh, at the meeting in November. So like people care about this. I can't help but think that we have a failure of human resources and energy. There's people who are so revved up about this and there's not a lot that they can do. If I said, I've got 800 people who are each willing to put in four hours of time every two weeks into this issue. That's a ton of energy. What do we do? What can we do with that energy? You can always tell people to send money but and, and to send political support. But I always wonder how do we harness people's passion and energy and skills, especially for these systemic problems? It seems like that's the biggest systemic problem, right? Is that we don't have ways to organize ourselves towards outcome that everybody agrees would be a better outcome. Historically, we have organized to fight for a better outcome. That has happened over and over again in our history, all the way from MLK on. And so I think that there is a lot of passion. I would red flag that just because somebody has an urgency or a passion for the issue doesn't mean that it's inherently altruistic. And so I would red flag that there are people in the world that wish homeless people would just die. We see that everywhere, right? I, I stay far away from the comment thread on news articles, even if I'm in them, only because there are a decent amount of people that wish homeless people would just die. They don't care. And they'll say it right there. You could see it. People are very <laughs> upfront about their hatred. And so circling back to the whole, what do we do about it first? People really need to unpack their stigma and their individualism and the way that our society teaches us to be, because we are very capitalistic. We are very self-serving. We are very selfish. We are very like me and my family. We're very self-centered. We don't have systems of community care. We don't invest in each other. We don't have like our system does not operate in a way where it puts the people at the bottom first. It doesn't operate in a way where there is passion and determination to care for the people at the lower grounds first. We focus on how our system is currently running and we work to uphold it. But what we need to do is we all need to sit down and we need to have a conversation about what is the answer. And I think we can all agree on housing is an answer. Housing supports are an answer. Addressing these larger systemic qualities are an answer. But we're not going to get there unless we do harness all that good energy, Liz, and we decide what are we working towards and how do we get there? We're all working in our own silos, and I can't help but think that the nonprofit industrial complex, as much as it serves right now within our system, I can't help but think how much it perpetuates those silos because it forces all the nonprofits to fight for the same grants and to get into arguments about 
what are we doing and who is getting the most money and who has the right ideas and who has the most client base and who has the best relationship with the city and, and all that little tiny things that don't even matter. Like it's not about community housing of Maine and it's not about Preble Street and it's not about Amistad. And it's not about the church of safe injection and it's not about Jess and it's not about Liz and it's not about Cullen and it's not about Donna and it's not about Heather. It's not about any of these people. Like all of us are an agent for change. That's it. It's not about us and it's not about our orgs or whether we get that grant next year. And the system does not leave a lot of room for us not to be focused on those things. Because if you're running a nonprofit, you have to consider how forward facing you are. You have to consider your next grant. You have to consider your next funding. You have to consider like what is happening here. And it doesn't leave a lot of room to focus on the systemic harm that's happening every single day that really needs to be addressed. Because part of the problem is we can't address it because we're still working in the same system. Okay, so we're Jess, still working on- I know yeah. you use the hard question when I put it to you, but I want you to keep mantraing this. If I had a magic wand, or if I had even better than a magic wand, if I had $10 million, because then you're forced to actually spend it on practical things. Like you can't just, like theoretically a magic wand, you could just remove all mental illness, right? But if you had $10 million, you'd actually have to plan and budget, you know, what to spend that. I'd on. open transitional housing. If I had $10 million, I'd open a bunch of transitional housing. Tell me more about that. What would it look like? It would get people directly off the streets and allow them to have the one-on-one -on -one support they need to like get where they need to go, wherever they're at. So what would it look like? How many people would be in a house? How many kitchens would there be? How much staff would people be have roommates? Would they have individual rooms? Just tell me, just paint me the picture. Paint you the picture. You want to come up with a treatment plan. All right. <laughs> just tell me exactly what it would look like, how long the average person would be there. But tell me, talk to me about the physical plan. What would it look like for starters? Damn, there'd be, I wouldn't have more than five people in a house. I definitely wouldn't have more than five people in a house. I would have a, at least three to four staff on at all times because you never know what's going to happen. And there wouldn't be a timeline about how long people can stay because everybody is different. It would be an individual treatment plan for each individual because some people would not be able to leave. Some people, there is no, <laughs> for people that are severely mentally ill and need one-on-ones and need the actual support there's no place for them to go especially if you're young there's no place for you so there wouldn't be a timeline my biggest thing has always been trying to give people the skills they need to get where they want to go whether that's emotional regulation skills or interpersonal relation skills or conflict management skills or just daily living skills all of those things but even as i say that i have never felt like i can decide what it is that another person is ready to learn yeah. either. And I know that I've been in a place where somebody has tried to give me tough love or feedback. And I wasn't in a place where I was able to learn that yet because what the person didn't see was the, the thing, the step before that, that I needed to reach before I could reach what they thought I needed to reach. And then even my thought, even now, now I said, okay, transitional housing, but I don't even, I don't even know. I don't even know that transitioning housing is what I would want to do because I haven't started a transitional housing and no transitional housing has ever helped me. It's always a hard question because I'm just a formerly unhoused person that is well too aware of systemic trauma and systemic inequities. Okay, I'm going to keep asking you that question every time I talk to you, Jess. Colin, what do you think? Well, I was trying to think about what I would do with $10 million. I'm involved in housing, but I don't know if that would go a long way. Um, right? It's a very small amount. Yeah, yeah, it's a very small amount. So what I would probably do 
is take the 10 million, uh, put it into a fund that would last for 10 years, hire 10 people for 10 years in a row, uh, have their salaries for 10 years in a row, all their benefits, everything else. And their job is housing stability worker. They find people who need housing, they navigate systems, they develop those relationships that are needed that tell people that they're worthwhile and that they matter. They navigate all the systems that stand in the way of people accessing and getting into housing. They help people access rental subsidies. They navigate relationships with landlords and leverage those so that they can say, yes, I'm stand by this person. It's just like you're renting to me. And then they not only get people into housing, but they follow up and support those people in housing. And 10 people with caseloads of 20 would serve 200 people a year. And I think their caseloads could grow because once people are in housing, they may need a diminishing amount of support compared to what they need if they are unsheltered, which takes a lot of relationship work. So it could be checking in several times a week for many people or helping people to navigate and get other support once they're in housing to stay there successfully. But you really need those people to be able to do it for long enough that it is a significant intervention. And we lack people who do that right now. And the only way that you can hire people to do that right now is to have them somehow bill main care. And you spend about half your time billing and you have to make what you do fit into the box of healthcare. And a lot of what people need is help finding housing, help getting a bed, help dealing with their friends who are in the trenches with them in homelessness from coming over and sabotaging their housing placements, how to set limits with uh, their peers. Those kinds of things don't fit neatly into billing for healthcare. And yet that's what matters for getting people into housing. And we know that once people are in housing, people get a lot more or have a pathway to wellness. So that's the first thing that pops into my mind. I don't even deliver, sir. I don't know who would do it. But if you spread that around and said, look, agency A, here, hire three people. Here, agency over here, hire two more. Have them all work together, but really go out there. I think they could cover a lot of ground and help dig a lot of people out of situations and, and have the ability to really hit the accelerator because they can put 40 hours into this instead of 20 and not be constricted by having to fit into all these other bureaucratic boxes and I'll tell you, people who are good load. at that do a really good job of it i just have a belief in envisioning big positive things and that we're more likely because sometimes once we say that's it and even if it might have taken us to have the challenge of what would you do with 200 million dollars or a billion dollars to get the idea but once we have the idea there's often things we can do on the ground for a lot less money even <laughs> privacy pods would be better they would even be better. They're not ideal. I hate giving, it's like the whole tiny home concept. I do hate the, let's give them a tiny home when we could give them a real one. But like, I hate that too, Jess. The privacy, like exactly. the privacy is so important. Yeah. Even in the interim, if we're talking about the interim, the privacy piece, that is life-saving. That is crisis intervention. That is harm reduction. When somebody can just close their fucking door. <laughs> that well, that's is why like... I think if people can get into their own apartment and lock the door and have their own bathroom or whatever else. So I think a one-bedroom apartment is a really neat thing for a human being. It is. Something we haven't talked about is the same on the 18th that the city council also voted to fully implement LD 2003, which means That's fantastic. That's huge. Yeah, so, Jess, I don't know if you're following that, but there was a state law passed a year and a half ago that basically abolished sort of single family zoning, which basically says up until now, it's been like 75% of Portland. Oh no, it's more like 95%. Yeah, it's our amazing. single family homes, like it's technically been illegal to build like 
or unit there, okay? And now because of state law and city of Portland implementing it fully, which really only happened because we have a super progressive council right now, and they brought amendments that changed it dramatically against the planning board's recommendations and staff recommendations. It's now you can build up to potentially 12 units on any little house lot in the city of Portland because the state requires four and then the Portland's affordable Density bonus says that if 100% of them are affordable to a certain income level, then you can get 2.5 as many units that gets up to 10. And then you have two accessory dwelling units. Theoretically, you could do something where you take a house lot and you build like 12 little pods on it. Like that is, or some combination of multi-unit and pods. And that's just something that was like literally impossible and illegal three weeks ago. The dimensional side, front and back setbacks requirements don't allow it practically in most instances, but that there's interesting opportunities now that didn't exist before. And I'm not sure how different it is from taking a three bedroom house and just creating like the equivalent of a sober house out of it. But it does, it, it does open, I, I don't know what makes it economical necessarily, but I was playing around with ideas instead of beating on short-term rentals and causing calling it like a problem, saying, oh, short-term rental licenses don't cost anything for the city to give to someone. What if you said you can have, if you build new housing, which is really expensive, you can have six short-term rental licenses for five years because they're worth like $20,000 each per year, but it doesn't cost taxpayers a dime. But then after that, it has to go into some more like general, you, you can't short-term rental after that, whether or not it has affordability requirements or not. You know what I mean? But it means that an organization like Cullen's could potentially use short-term money, rental money to build something, run it for five years that way, and then have it mostly paid for, and then be able to use it for whatever population you want. I think there's some creative opportunities that are available now that weren't before, but I think it's going to take people a while to like think about it and put it together and figure out the economics because it's just not how we've done things. Yeah, it's huge. The If you look at the land area of Portland, it was a really small little, almost a small little section that allowed multifamily and all the rest of the land mass is all single family. And so this now opens up an uh, awful lot of opportunity where the housing doesn't need to look a whole lot different. A four unit building looks a lot like many of the larger single family homes we have on various thoroughfares on our Brighton Avenue or Forest Avenue. There's a lot of those along there, but you can have a building that looks just like that, but has four one bedroom apartments in it now. Instead of one family, it's four households. It's really great. Yeah, I think this has been a really good conversation, Liz. And Jess, I just want to thank you. It's just a treat to get to listen to you and think with you. It, it's a joy. So thank you. That's a gift. I feel the same. This has been nice. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you both taking time and it's a joy to be with both of you at the same time. And I love hearing you talk, Jess. Thanks to the West End News for hosting us. See you next time. Mm -hmm.